0: wmqa hello and welcome to wmqa the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them i'm dan Grote. and i'm matt lazuli and this week's guest is the co-founder of the new syzygy publishing imprint which is currently putting out joe hill's Rain and image comics chris ryle welcome chris hey guys thanks for having me here so uh what are some of the first comics that you remember reading
1: but well, first of all, I want to uh, I want to applaud you for pronouncing Syzygy correctly right out of the gate. That That is not <laughs> a thing that happens very often. So uh, <laughs> impressive on that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> first comic out of the gate. So I was actually I had the chance to tell this to George Perez recently, but first comic that I ever owned was uh, Fantastic Four 164, which was a book that he drew and Joe Sinnott inked, which to me was about the perfect way in, because I don't know that there was just a team that epitomized sort of classic, you know, powerful, perfect superhero storytelling than Perez and Sinnott. Um Prior to that, the only other comic that I'd read was another copy of Fantastic Four, which I think it was those two things together that made Fantastic Four just always kind of my, my perennial favorite just because of that. But a neighbor down the street when I was about four years old had a copy of Fantastic Four 130 which had this great Stranko cover they're fighting the frightful for. And so you've got, you know, as a little kid, I see this big Rocky character and this guy that can stretch and this, this lady with, you know, living hair and a guy made of sand and a guy on fire. And like for a little kid who'd never really seen that sort of thing before, like there was no turning back for me. You know, I used to go to my neighbors all the time to flip through this comic. And finally I got tired of having to walk to the neighbor's house because they had comics strewn everywhere I remember and, and so I was just like they're not going to miss this one are they so I rolled it up and put it in the pocket and and that became the first comic that I owned but uh FF164 was the first one that I bought with my own allowance money
0: mm-hmm. that is uh, that's a hell of a one to uh, start with there uh, you, you know in the in the back of rain number 2 you know you write this this very touching tribute to Perez, which includes that story. Uh, you know, he's, he's recently moved in hospice for terminal cancer. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, you know, what, what made this, the place, you know, the back of this, this particular comic to, to tell that story, to write that essay.
1: You know, because I could, because I had that outlet and I don't know, you know, it was kind of one of the things where I was like, do I write a thing about George now? Do I, I didn't want to write a eulogy, you know, like George mm-hmm. is still alive and George is still every picture you see him and he's smiling. In fact, he's now home. Um, they got him home just yesterday, I think. And oh so God. I just wanted to to sort of talk about my, my lifelong love of George and the comics he's produced and kind of the person that he is behind the, the talent in a piece that people can read while George is still here and still, you know, still around where people can kind of talk about what he's meant to them and I mean George and the comics he's produced and the presence he's had and the way he is with his fans all of those things have just kind of loomed so large throughout my entire life and I just you know every chance I get when I can talk about the kind of people that maybe want to work in this business and maybe just love comics like I'm I'm happy to take and so just having that that space I was like well I could talk about nonsense or I could talk about this guy that is deserving of all the possible claim we can give him. So it just felt like any place right now is the right place to talk about uh, what George has meant to all of us.
0: Certainly. Uh, And, and, you know, you mentioned in the essay, you had the pleasure of working with him on that uh, Artist Select book. Uh, You know, it it sounds like, you know, maybe a couple other times beyond that. Uh, You know, I did get to meet him once, thankfully. Uh, He had uh, two, oh, God, three years ago now, Uh, during convention season he held a series of uh, retirement dinners and Mm. so uh, (laughs) i went to one at a show in uh north jersey but it's just it's so clear that the man is beloved you know not just as a creator but as a human being like on the level of of kirby like on that sort of comics rushmore level and it's it's yeah
1: i mean he's one of those guys that just seemed to 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 give as much to his fans as he gave to every comic page he drew you know like I you'd see him at any time at a convention and he'd have this massive line and you're like, surely he gets tired. And uh, you know, I, I, don't know, annoyed hungry has to go to the bathroom the same way all of us do, but he doesn't, he doesn't seem like that. You know, like he doesn't seem like it, it, he ever has enough. And, or if he does, he internalizes it and he just keeps giving back to the fans, which, you know, you see the pictures now. And, and since his, his diagnosis, every picture is him with just this huge smile on his face. And like, he can't always be feeling that smile, but I think, Mm -hmm. I think he's doing that as much for us as he is for himself to just kind of tell everybody, Hey, it's okay. Like I accept this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm meeting this head on. And so all of you should, should sort of, I don't know, meet me with a smile and sort of keep that smile on your face too, because it's a thing that obviously everybody's going to go through. And it's just that he's going through it in such a kind of publicly heroic and, and front facing way is just, I don't know. It just it just kind of helps further epitomize what everybody has thought about, like how great he is, like personally and professionally.
0: Absolutely. You know, and and, you know, as as tragic as this is, you know, the fact that people do get the opportunity to say these things while he is still alive and not, you know, uh, posthumously is there's there is a benefit to that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, he's a guy that's always been humble about his talent, you know, like when he tells these stories that in the early nineties, when some kid came up to him and said, Hey, you know, you keep trying, and you're going to be as good as Todd McFarlane. And he was <laughs> like, shit, I need to prove myself all over you because there's a new generation of comic fans coming up. And so as much as, you know, this generation loves me, like the next generation reading comics doesn't know me from anybody. So I need to keep doing all I can to keep earning those fans and and sort of keep justifying them buying my stuff and I think just that just that he was a guy that forever wanted to do all the work he had to do to to keep earning fan support is you know again just a testament to the kind of guy that he is like he never sort of sat back and just just basked in his greatness he was always humble about it and so yeah I think the more we can kind of drum it into his head that no no man you you're not just another comic artist as much as like you feel like you are like you you mean so much more to so many more people, and I think it's great that that he can finally sort of just sit back and let that wash over him.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, are you looking to acquire one of those Hero Hero Initiative copies of JLA Avengers, or are you fortunate enough to have uh, something from the original printing?
1: Well, I kept the four issues. Yeah, I never got the collected edition back in the day, but I've got the original comics. So. I did, I told the guy at my local shop, hey man, if you can happen to get a copy and you don't have enough fans that want them, like take care of everybody else first because I've got the comics. Mm-hmm. But if there's another copy that that you somehow don't have a media uh, buyer for, like absolutely, I want one. But I mean, I'd rather have it go to somebody who maybe hasn't experienced George's work before. And like I say, I, I tend to keep the comics that I love. And so I've still got those originals and that's, that is more than good enough for me. <laughs> that's
0: great. Okay, so now I'm going to ask the toughest question uh, of this Already,
1: we're we're five minutes in. I like it.
0: (laughs) You're hard. (laughs) If Syzygy starts with an S, the word, why is the logo a Z? Uh,
1: You know, that's a question more for Ashley Wood, who is the designer and art director and co-founder of all of this. And Ash is, like, Ash is an artist first, so everything with with ash is about what's aesthetically pleasing to him and you know he loves the z like he loves the sharp angles on the z and he Mm -hmm. loves uh just the way that that kind of works as a logo more than just the soft curves of an s like he liked the hard lines and hard edges and so he said you know in syzygy it's the center point of the word and so that letter is now our center point i mean it's it's close enough to center point you know what i mean it's the third of six letters and so but yeah, I mean, he just really liked the way it looked graphically more than anything else. i That's why I like working with Ash, because I'm such a word guy where I can be pedantic about, well, no, technically there would be an apostrophe. There would be this. He's like, yeah, fuck it. It looks better like this. I go, right, right. I need to kind of get out of my own strunken white head and just go with like what looks cool on paper. And so that's that's where like I think he and I are a good balance for one another.
0: Also worth more in Scrabble.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: But uh, yeah, so so let's get into to, this. Is you know what is the origin of this this venture? You know what made you and, and, and Ash uh, want to strike out and and uh, kind of build your own
1: uh, space? For well, this? we so we originally wanted to do this a few years ago. Uh, I left IDW originally in I want to say it was 2017. Like the last few years for mm-hmm. everybody I know kind of blurred together but i think it was early 2017 i left there and then ash and i decided to start this little thing just to do what we wanted sort of without restraint you know we we just thought we'd uh i don't know just kind of get back to the fun of it like i i kind of got to a point in idw where the management of of my current roles were sort of overwhelming the the creative part of the job and so with that, a lot of the fun recedes, you know, and so we thought, all right, well, let's do this thing. Obviously, nobody else is really going to care about these projects to the same degree that they would like a Transformers book or whatever else. So we thought, let's just do this. And then when I left IDW, we thought, okay, let's launch it. And then I went to um, Skybound. And so it got put on hold for a bit. Because, uh, you know, I took this, this editorial role at Skybound, and it was editor-in-chief of a new line I was going to try to get going for them. And so I said, yeah, yeah, fine. Let's, let's hold off on it for a bit. And then we were going to get it going again. And that was when IDW called and said, Hey, we would like to sort of rectify some things in the past and make you president and publisher, if you would be willing to come back. And so I went back and it went on hold again. So it was kind of this thing that like kept stopping and starting. Mm -hmm. Um, And then finally, when, when I left IDW for good in summer of 2020, We said all right now now let's finally do this thing and so uh, you know we just decided to try to build it out and and see what could uh what could come of it um it was nice timing because that was that was a point where image reached out and said hey you know we'd like to offer you this imprint we'd love to just let you come you know do what you might want to do and so we said hey we have an imprint we have this imprint that's kind of uh you know been slowly baking and, and could be ready to go and so you know, we thought not only will we do this stuff, we want to do like zombies and robots, you know, which is the first, second thing Ash and I ever did together. Um, first thing we did was a couple of stories in this magazine called Doomed, which was kind of like an eerie and creepy throwback tribute kind of thing. But ZVR was the book that kind of became us, you know, that kind of became the thing that sort of most summed up our working relationship. So we thought, okay, well, we have the full publishing rights back for that one now for the first time ever. You know, we never had stole control of it before and so let's do that but let's also bring in some friends and so while we were prepping ZVR um, that's when we thought well range should maybe be the first book we launched with because rather than have it be just a vanity press kind of thing right out of the gate we thought well let's let's use this book to kind of show people what what Syzygy is which is not only me and Ash but it's friends and, and people that we like and admire and just kind of trying to tell stories that we think are smart and compelling, but maybe have a, I don't know, different or more idiosyncratic kind of feel to them, um, which I think Zoe's art very nicely epitomizes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's not like you would see on another Joe Hill comic like Lock and Key, which where Gabriel is, is all about precision and, and sort of very specific detail and his architectural background coming into play. And Zoe is all what just sort of emotion and, and just kind of, letting the the thing you know the art flow out of her without worrying about straight edges and and hard lines and things like that so it that just felt like the right kind of book to really sum up like how we see syzygy going forward um
0: besides besides syzygy being a cool word as we have discussed uh and a high value scrabble target uh you know what made it the right word to describe what you're what you're looking to do here
1: I mean, it does have it has a sort of cosmic sort of celestial definition of, of bodies that kind of are, are circling around one another, kind of making a stronger whole, which we thought was a nice way to, to sum up, you know, Ash and I working together. Um, but again, I, I think that probably was a happy accident to some degree on Ash's part. You know, he liked the word and the way it looked and the way it led to this logo and everything. And I was like, hey, yeah, one of the definitions is this. He goes, OK, yeah, great, fine. Um, so it, it worked, but I don't think I don't think a word that perfectly summed up uh, who we are and what we do together was necessarily his his first driver, which I also kind of love. You know, again, it was me trying to think more literal and him just thinking more ethereally, you know, and, and I think, again, those two things just kind of make it work nicely for me. Also, it worked because there was a character back in a, an 80s Jim Starlin comic called Dreadstar that I liked a lot at the mystic character was a guy named Syzygy and he was always one of my favorite characters. So I was like, all right, yeah, Syzygy, that that works for that reason too. And it's the name of a great X-Files
2: episode. That was my next note. (laughs) Funny story. I learned this from an episode of the X-Files.
1: That's I think where people, probably the only place where most people have experienced the word because, you know, when I, when we first told people what this was going to be called, they had three things to say, which is like, what the hell is it? How the hell do you pronounce it? (laughs) And how do you spell it again? Um, you know, everybody said, change that goddamn name. Like, it's terrible. It's not going to work. Nobody's going to remember it. Nobody's going to know what to do of it. And we're like, all right. Well. <laughs> you know, we, we could be straightforward and call it like, I don't know, Dark Visions or whatever the hell. Uh, but I, I like something that was a bit more esoteric.
2: That's how all those old episodes of the X-Files worked. And everybody remembers those titles which were all weird and esoteric and weren't you know, displayed in the episode, but people remember them.
1: And, you know, if if us calling this Syzygy reminds people of a great old X-Files episode and helps kind of remove their last lingering memory of X-Files being the reboot, we've also <laughs> done our part there, like reminding people that, like, hey, no, it used to be great.
2: <laughs> uh... <laughs>
0: Syzygy Publishing, helping you remember Jose Chung's from Outer Space <laughs> 2022. Or,
2: hell, the IGW seasons t- 10 and 11. I'll take those.
1: <laughs> so, so okay, you, you you gave me permission before the start to kind of go off on tangents, and if I can go off on a real quick one. Please when IDW first t- took on the X-Files license, we were doing a panel at Comic-Con. So the comic launched in May of whatever year that was, mm. and so in July was, was Comic-Con and on our panel was Chris Carter and Jillian Anderson. we're like, Holy shit, we got Jillian Anderson on our panel. I guess us comic book dipshits are sitting up there with, you know, TV royalty. And at that point, the third issue of the series hadn't quite come out yet, but also at that point before the revival TV series was announced or even in the planning stages um, there was all this online scuttlebutt about where's the third X-Files movie, where's the third X-Files movie. So we're in this panel and it was a really large panel room, like bigger than most comic panels because, you know, X-Files fans and Gillian Anderson and Chris Carter fans. And so it's this packed room of people. And I said, hey, before we get started, like, I know everybody's wanted to ask this question. I'm here right now to announce that X-Files 3 is on its way. And Gillian's sitting next to me and she looks at me like, what the fuck? Like, how are you announcing this thing that I'm not even aware of? And so she's kind of up in arms and everybody in the crowd's like, holy shit, like he just announced this thing. And so I reach in my bag and I pull out X-Files number three, which was due out in stores in about two weeks. And she's like, you fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but like no other time would that have worked. Cause you know, I had the, the advance of the third issue. It hadn't hit stores yet. And so it was just like, I couldn't not do it even though I didn't like work it out with her and Chris ahead of time. So it, it kind of took them by surprise, but you know, you, you try to liven these things up as best you can.
0: <laughs> you, you, you saw the opportunity for a good bit and you ran with it and-,
2: and That is a story <laughs> that everyone at that panel will remember forever.
1: <laughs> it was her first Comic-Con and her first Comic-Con panel. So, you know, why not break her in properly, you know, and, and do something ridiculous. <laughs> yeah i took us far away from the question oh no, is no about this is good. your name but uh
0: <laughs> Ap- apologize for nothing uh what do you see uh as sort of the you know you you've got you've got zombies versus robots coming back so you know you you get to to control your and, and, and ash's baby uh you know you're putting out you just put, this week as a yes we are recording you're releasing uh 7174 annual which is again uh an ashley wood joint with uh tp louise yes uh, i i i should note for the listeners uh all the syzygy books are are well arranged on the spinner rack over Chris's shoulder
1: <laughs> and normally they're not like normally i have old like favorite old comics like i i pulled some spider-man and other stuff to make room for those because normally i'm not like using a spinner rack as a testament to our ego it's more of like childhood favorite stuff but for this I figured yeah it should at least be there as uh as kind of totems sitting behind me
0: absolutely uh you know and then and then you've got you know your your launch book which was rain which is an adaptation of a Joe Hill story uh but the comic was written by David Boer and uh illustrated by uh Zoe thoroughgood as we as we discussed so you know given that and and maybe some of the things that are are, are coming up that are either known quantities or or that we you know can't talk about yet uh you know what is sort of the what makes a book a syzygy book
1: it's funny because i i did another editorial page about this because i had a lot of people ask me like well if i want to pitch you what are you looking for and i you know what what is syzygy what is syzygy's sort of output going to look like and i mean the best kind of ridiculous answer i gave i could give is just I don't know, like if we like it, if we think it fits alongside the other stuff we're doing, but I kind of use Ash as as sort of the way I always have, which is sort of my like creative North star, my barometer for distinctive and cool. Cause Mm -hmm. you know, Ash does this thing that, that is so different than what most comic people do. You know, he's, he's a designer and a painter and, and sort of a graphic artist as much as he is a storyteller. And so it's, it's not always straight ahead you know, panels drawn on a grid kind of thing in a comic, but everything is a bit more, um, I don't know. There's a bit more sort of looseness to it in the same way that like a Bill Sienkiewicz comic or when Kent Williams was doing comics, you know, that school of approaching a page is, is the way Ash approaches things. And so I think it's just that kind of look and feel and aesthetic and that slightly off kilter, but really cool kind of thing that, uh, that we want Syzygy to be. And so Zoe's art isn't at all like Ash. Like I don't want, mm-hmm. I don't want knockoffs, which also makes it hard to kind of define for people. But I just, I want something that you wouldn't look at and necessarily go, well, that could be a Top Cow book or, a, or an Aftershock book or a Dark Horse book or a Boom book. Uh, I want something that kind of has a feel that like, all right, well, maybe that's not quite as, I don't know, interchangeable isn't meant derogatorily, but, but you know what I mean, where you kind of, get A book that could have been pitched to any number of places and found home with those places. And so we're just trying to find things that maybe have a, a bit slightly different kind of eye applied to the storytelling. Um, and again, like I realize that's frustrating and, and nebulous when it's telling creators like what we're after. But I, you know, ultimately, like when you're pitching any publisher, it sort of comes down to if they like it or not. You know, that's kind of the overriding thing. And so I guess I'm not looking for like straight superhero style comics or you know the, the 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 same kind of art style that you might see in any number of other books but things that I don't know just just kind of have a more unique bent to them if possible. Mm-hmm. Is there
0: a a a big or or sort of a couple of lessons that you took with you from running IDW from your time in editorial at Skybound that you feel like you're applying to, to
1: Syzygy? Um, I mean, the, the thing about IDW is because, you know, when I first started, I was the editor in chief, but I was also, Mm -hmm. there was no marketing person. There was no, you know, there was one, the one of the guys was the head of production, but I mean, I did a lot of like sort of the production prep work and the marketing work and a lot of the business end of things, especially in like license acquisition and, the steps involved with that and so I think what I took from from all of that is just kind of a little bit of everything and so so it doesn't make it easier to run books without a staff you know without support staff around me but it does at least sort of make me acclimated in knowing what all those different sides of the business entail and and how to manage them as best as possible like it's still a struggle to to Juggle all the different sort of disparate needs, you know. Um, but I at least have a background in all of those things, and so I can handle the editorial side and, and you know my role on the production side and the interfacing with image or retailers and the marketing. Like all of those things are are kind of part of just my DNA at this point. Um, and so I think it was more my earlier years at IDW that helped more than anything else. Like the later years as you sort of progress, you have more and more people under you that are doing things. And so mm-hmm. you tend to, even if you don't want to, you tend to get kind of removed from various parts of the day-to-day. Whereas back in the early days, like the day-to-day was doing everything. And so once again, I'm kind of doing a high percentage of everything. Um, mm-hmm. And so it in that way, it feels nice. Like it, there's a certain bloat when a company gets to be 60 or 70 people that Again, I don't mean as a negative as much as just everybody has their specific roles. And so you're, you kind of are doing less of the things that you either like doing or were good at doing. And now this is back to like, all right, then careful what you wish for, because now you're doing all of it. Um, and so a lot of it is that is just kind of figuring out how to once again manage all the different parts of the business that I used to.
0: So, uh, like we mentioned, uh, the first book in the Syzygy line is Rain. Uh, Adaptation of a Joe Hill short story written by David Boer, drama is always thorough good, Colored by Chris O'Halloran, letter by Sean Lee. Uh, Matt, I'm going to give you the honor, especially because you requested it specifically, of reading the solicit text for the listeners.
2: (laughs) It's Joe Hill. I need to read this. (laughs) Nice. On a seemingly normal August day in Boulder, Colorado, the skies are clear and Honeysuckle Speck couldn't be happier. She's finally moving in with her girlfriend Yolanda. But their world is literally torn apart when dark clouds roll in and release a downpour of nails, splinters of bright crystal that shred the skin of anyone not safely undercover. Rain makes vivid this escalating apocalyptic event as the deluge of nails spreads across the country and around the world, threatening everything young lovers Honeysuckle and Yolanda hold dear.
1: Very compelling. Nicely done. (laughs) that sounds good. Like I'd read that comment.
0: (laughs) So how did this book come together as, as launch book, you know, book number one for you guys?
1: You know, it, it started with like, when I left IDW, the whole thrust going forward was we want to work with people that we like, you know, and just kind of, I mean, obviously that's what people always want to try to do, but in this case it was, since we weren't going to be doing that many books, you could sort of really handpick mm-hmm. um, and just make sure you're surrounding yourself with friends and people that inspire you and all of that. And so Joe was obviously one of those people, like Joe's one of the people that I've enjoyed, one of the, the best, you know, most fulfilling creative partnerships and friendships that I've ever known. And so to do this new thing, you know, I, I really wanted to try to bring Joe along in whatever way I could. And while he couldn't, necessarily commit to doing an entirely new book entirely on his own um he said yeah you know if there's there's a thing you want to do um and I remember David Boer who's another guy that I really like and admire the guy that writes. you know I first met him through Canto at IDW Mm -hmm. but he loves this story he really wanted to adapt it and so we all just started talking about what we would do with it how we would approach it um and so that was kind of the first piece of it and then it was like all right well who's the right artist for this? you know Joe is very associated with Gabriel, who's another guy that I just adore personally, professionally, like in all the ways that you can, uh, you know, love a person. Like, I think Gabe is just amazing. Um, But I also didn't want, I didn't want the next Joe Hill project to be a thing that looked like it was trying to uh, emulate the Joe and Gabe style, you know? So we thought, well, it's, this should be something more, I don't know, just something different from what Gabe does and something more raw and visceral and so uh, um zoe's graphic novel last year that the impending blindness of billy scott i thought was just like that was her first book and it's it's stunning like it's just such a stunning achievement so my whole thing was like i want somebody like that like somebody like zoe would be amazing i wonder if there was somebody like zoe because i thought well there's no way we're getting zoe i mean zoe is already right out of this gate this, this this kind of fully formed graphic novelist who's Going to go on and make an incredible run of graphic novels entirely on her own. Mm-hmm. We're not getting her, but I'm like, let's ask her. Like that's kind of the way I have worked with so many people that I thought I would never get, or that people said I would never get. You know, it's just just ask them, give them a chance to say no. And I asked Zoe, and it it came at the right time for her. Where I don't think if I ask her a year from now, she's able to do it because Marvel and DC have already come calling. She's got her next graphic novel that she's shopping around, mm-hmm. and then she's going to go on. And like I say. Do her own thing where she's not going to be so reliant on or even choosing to work with other people to the same degree i think and so it was just this perfect alignment of her style her availability her willingness and so she david and i had this this zoom where we talked about what this could be what she could do with it the freedom we would give her um and she loved the story she loved the idea of it and she jumped in and so it was, it was like holy shit like this is kind of everything i would want this to be the only thing that would make it better is if we got a color that really knew how to flatter, um, a style like Zoe's and Chris O'Halloran, like flatters everybody. First of all, like mm-hmm. you see his name on so many books now and so many great books. Um, like he's doing this Hellboy book with Matt Smith right now at, uh, dark horse that I just think is stunning, but he did an issue of ha ha with Zoe. Yep. And I was like, God, there's such a good team together. And so again, he was a guy that I thought, well, he's, He's way too busy you know but let's ask him and and he said yeah i'll fit that in to work with zoe again and so it's just nice to be able to go down the line and and you know sean lee's another like sean's a guy that i love what he was doing at uh things like lock and key and the other books that he's been doing Mm -hmm. um he worked on this madman book with me that was nominated actually won an eisner um and so he's a guy that like style-wise and design-wise and lettering-wise, like, I, I love. And so just being able to just kind of handpick be like you and you, you know, and have everybody say yes, just worked out so nicely. And so just top to bottom, it, it's, it's kind of the exact book that I wanted it to be, which makes it so gratifying that it seems to really be working for other people in that same way.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, you know, again, on the other hand, you've got uh, 7174, which is coming out uh, this week. Ashley Wood, T.P. Louise. Uh, this is... I mean, to the extent that you can answer this, because obviously this is, this is Ashley's baby, uh, You know, what, what is some of the background on this? Because this is some stuff that he's had kicking around for, for a bit. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, so, so when Ash left IDW, or left kind of full-time comics, um, he started a company called 3A, which is basically making his robot toys... And he did a little publishing around that. And then he left 3A a couple of years ago and started a, another similar company called UV, um, which stands for the Underverse, where he's kind of doing the same thing where he's doing toys and statues and things like that. Um, and with a lot of those, he does the custom publishing or he's just doing art on the side. And so a lot of that stuff either packs him with toys or he was doing it just for his like subscribers or, or your very specific fan base. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of the stuff he's done you know is recent but not been seen by anybody except for his sort of real devoted core and so we thought well he does like one of the stories in this book is called Astro Boy Mm -hmm. um, which is very much like Astro Boy just different enough to you know not evoke lawyers or anything like that Um, (laughs) but they're really fun and playful and cool and like I say Ash approaches comics and storytelling with just such a what would be cool what would be a cool visual what would be a, just like a great way of doing this thing and i just find them so unique and charming and i thought well man your stuff needs to be seen by a bigger audience and so he said yeah that was part of the reason he wanted to do this imprint through image was because it was a way to get a lot of his work that that has only been seen by a select few you know seen by the broader comic market and get him back into comic stores again rather than a lot of what he's done which is direct mail direct to consumer that kind of thing and so this annual is just chock full of short stories and, you know, cool pieces of art and think text things that he, TP Louise is his wife. Um, they created lore together and have done a lot of other things together. But again, just hasn't really been seen by a broader audience. So we are using the imprint in some ways to, to try to elevate things that that we think are really cool, but maybe would benefit from a bigger audience being able to see them. And so that's that's what that is.
0: Yeah. It, uh, you know, I've only read a digital copy, but this this strikes me and you've got the physical behind you. Yeah, you yeah. know, this strikes me as a book where paper selection was a major factor.
2: And it's slightly oversized as well. Right. It's not. Yeah. Normal floppy sized.
1: Yeah. It's magazine size, which I know, you know, depending on who you talk to in, in the comic market, like. Uh, people say they don't love the format or it's difficult because it doesn't fit as perfectly into a spinner rack or on on retailer shelves or that kind of thing which i understand sort of in the broader sense but but in a specific sense like the thing i love about comics are the different sizes and formats and paper stocks and for ash it's always been all about production value and paper stock and so he'll use a matte finish rather than something glossy that kind of takes his ink and color work much better um He'll do you know, French flaps on books rather than just a straight cover because he wants the artifact to matter as much as the art. And so, yeah, I mean, he wanted this to be a thing that gives people good value. You know, it's a lot of pages um, for 10 bucks, but he still wants it to feel like a thing that is substantial and cool and doesn't just feel as, as kind of disposable as a lot of comics feel now. You know, that was, that was always a thing. And I think he was one of the key drivers of that in the early days of IDW was that, the format and the paper stock and the cardstock covers and all of that are a thing that that mattered, and so that kind of makes them matter more to fans, and also gives people more value for their money. And I think today, when you're asking people to spend four or five, ten dollars on a book, you know, the more you can do to to sort of make it a worthwhile purchase for them, the better. Um, same thing we've been trying to do in all the comics. You know, we've been doing backup stories in Rain we've been coming up with new material, new editorials, new text pieces, things like that throughout the different books, just to try to not do, you know, the 20 page story and then ads kind of thing. Because again, we want to, I don't know, we want to earn and then reward people for for taking chances on our stuff. And so that's kind of the driver behind all of this is what's going to feel cool and be something people want to keep and want to collect.
0: And then uh, I think this is at the end of looking ahead to the end of the March. You've got Zombie versus Robots Classic ZVRC, uh, and so these are these are some of the original stories. Uh, and then they're being repackaged with with some new material. Correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. So some of those two were only they were only seen in like the the most limited of ways. And so we thought we'll not only represent them to the world um, the stories as they were, but you know in chronological order, but also add a bunch of new stuff to it so actually doing new covers new frontispieces we're doing new backup stories we're doing this this sort of running text piece in each issue that is what we call the secret history of ZVR which is a completely ridiculous kind of run through of, of the entire comic industry from the 30s <laughs> forward but assuming that ZVR was a part of it from that time period and so it plays off a lot of real world events but in a completely farcical way and just sort of talks about, you know, the troubles that we run into with various censors in the 30s and 40s and 50s and, <laughs> and and just kind of uses the real history of comics as kind of the grounding sort of foundation for a completely ridiculous march through the industry and, 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 you know, what ZBR's place or perceived place would have been had it existed in all those different eras. So, you know, just it's always been a book that has been we've had to treat the stories as ridiculous as the concept itself. And so with that, the text pieces are the same thing where there's a degree of of veracity to them, but completely masked by just utter ridiculousness.
2: So so now I I have to picture 40s era Ashley Wood in the same studio as Jack Kirby and, you know, (laughs) hearing Kirby rant because that's what the, the king did best. Other than it, yeah,
1: right. We were we're very much. I mean, we, we certainly don't elevate ourselves alongside the, the luminaries of the day. So, whereas there was Eisner eiger Studios up here, you know, producing all this stuff, we were these two dipshits producing these terrible comics <laughs> or just chasing trends or or just missing trends. You know, as as the '50s sort of gave away from the crime and horror comics to these sanitized superhero books again, and the advent of the Comics Code that's when we've decided it's a good time to launch a book called chain gang bang, you know, and, and, and just stupid things like that, where we're just missing the trends. We're just kind of not understanding our place or not, not figuring out how to make a real go of it, which I think, you know, again, there's, there's bits of truth underneath all of that where we've never really tried to chase the trends. We just do whatever the hell we want and hope it works. And so, yeah, again, like, the Kirby's and Eisner's and everybody are up here doing this this stuff that matters. And we're down here just trying to hack out whatever sort of, you know, whatever trend following kind of nonsense that we can and, uh, and all the pitfalls that go with it. So chapter two, which we just, we just put to bed is uh, ends with our incarceration for a time and stuff like that, so.
0: When do we get to the deep fake wizard magazine pages? <laughs>
1: I mean that that should be toward the uh the final issue. Yeah. The final issue is we'll probably play off a bit more of our real history, you know, in a veiled way than uh than maybe is wise, but at least the, the previous chapters we can just completely have fun with it because we weren't actually a part of things then. So it will be a little tricky when we get to the part of the world that we actually existed in and how we portray that without, you know, too blatantly offending people that
2: should be offended. <laughs> Names have not been changed to protect the guilty.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> now, was this a world that you were looking to return to? Was it the opportunity of hey, we can get the rights back on this? You know, uh, I guess how, w- where in the middle of of timing, desire, and opportunity does this to, does this all meet?
1: I mean we we always talk about doing new zvr and for the most part ash you know running a toy company and everything else he's doing as part of that never leaves him time to do that and so Mm -hmm. i would go off and say okay that's fine but i'm going to do this series with somebody else i'm going to do this with somebody else and every time and he doesn't this is no slight because i doubt he looks at any what anybody else does but every time he even acknowledges that those books exist he'll go well that's utter bullshit like those books are crap because they're not done by the creators. You know, they only matter if they're done by us two creators. And I'm like, well, then, motherfucker, get back and create some stuff again. Um, and so he said, okay, well, if you do it where I don't have to answer to anybody, if you can find a way to do that, then let's do it. And so, yeah, we, we found a way, like, as part of my leaving IDW where I was able to, to, to convince them to sort of, you know, transfer all associated publishing rights to us. So now we can do whatever we want without, without restraint or, you know, even a voice of reason behind us. Um, And so that was good enough for Ash to to want to come back and play around some more. He just, in the previous iteration, he reached a point where he didn't want to do more. That was a company thing. He wanted to do it if he, you know, owned and participated and was able to just kind of do what, uh, what he wanted when he wanted. And so that's kind of where it all came about. But we're always talking about, we're always kicking around ideas and I'll write up a thing and think, hey, wouldn't this be great? He's like, yeah, I love it. Uh, let's do it at some point. And then three years go by and it's not done. So now hopefully those three years have gone by and we're, we're able to finally do a bunch of these things.
0: Given given your, your, your history, you know, with, with working with licensed products, especially at, at IDW, did that help at all during the period when zvr was you know sort of making the adaptation
1: rounds um i mean it did in that i understood why something needed to be drastically changed to make it work like when we first did zvr our whole thing was was that was like 2000 late 2005 early 2006 so at that point already like there was a lot of development execs at conventions chasing every indie comic to try to option the rights so we said well let's do something that is so stupid and so just doesn't deserve to be a a thing that it's never going to work as as a film like zombies have no personality no human characterization that kind of thing and robots are kind of the same in that they're programmed a certain way and so for for neither antagonist nor protagonist are their character arcs. And so we said, well, this will never be anything but a goofy comic. You know, it it couldn't be. There's nothing there. And so I think it was just to our eternal amusement that Sony said, yeah, we want that. We want to turn that into a film. But so I completely understood and embraced the idea that they could never do the version that we did in the comics as a film. Because, again, there's no parts for actors to play. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. That said, um, like anybody, when they change your stuff to such a degree that you don't recognize any of it, you go, well guys, you're, you're so far away from what this was. Maybe you didn't need to buy this thing. You could have just made a thing that was its own thing. Um, and so it's kind of a mystifying part of the process. Similarly, like, like when they changed the name from Zombies versus robots to inherit the Earth. That was what the film title was going to be. Mm. Um, which, to me, I mean, I, I certainly get the full expression, the whole meek, Shall Inherit the Earth" thing. But to me, it always read as like a guy whose great uncle dies and leaves him a plot of land in Kansas or something. You know, it, "Inherit mm-hmm. the Earth" didn't necessarily tell you what this film was. Where ours is like, well, it's a dumb title, but it does all your marketing for you. Um, but it was sort of right after, like, the, uh, the Cowboys and Aliens kind of killed the idea of, of a versus or a this and that in the title kind of thing. And so, again, I understood the need to change it, but at the same time, it, it I don't know, I, you know, you, you always kind of like the thing you make rather than think somebody else is going to make. But that said, there were a lot of really talented people that were attached to it that did different versions of the screenplay. There's a guy now that has, just has, I won't name him um, because I don't know if that ever became public or is on his IMDb, but he's done just some of the best TV in the last few years that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that guy was once taking a pass at ZVR. Like, how great would that have been if it could have actually happened that way? Um, so it's flattering that really talented people sort of put their spin on it. But ultimately, like, it becomes a really big, costly movie. and it's gotten that much harder for really big costly movies to get made if they don't have really popular underlying source material and you know we were never more than a cult comic, so i it's hard I think for them to justify a hundred and fifty or two hundred million dollar budget on this silly little comic that you know sold five thousand copies. I don't know if any part of that touched on your question um,
0: it was it was information,
1: yeah. <laughs> but it was a lot of words, but no, it was, I think working with licensors did, yeah, certainly acclimate me to the fact that you sort of, there's always a give and take in these things in Mm -hmm. how the story is told and trying to please all sides best you can. Uh,
0: So we did get a, uh, this will be a a much more fun question. Uh, A uh, question, a Twitter question from uh, our regular Twitter inquisitor Asimov fangirl who asks, which would be more dangerous, a robified zombie, or a robot acting like a zombie?
1: I mean, I think the robot acting like a zombie because the robified zombie is still ultimately, I'm assuming, mostly flesh, even if it's got, or if it's a zombie cyborg or something, there's still parts of it that you can presumably kill with a large enough gun. Um, Whereas a robot, you know, is going to be more indestructible. It's going to be, or at least, thicker metal you know of some sort so if not indestructible at least harder to kill and then if it's programming is completely botched and it's mindless and unstoppable like that that to me feels like a lot bigger problem um presumably it can move a lot faster than a zombie too and so like i think of the two if one of those was charging me i think that would be the one i'd be more scared of
0: all right (laughs) i didn't want to get too bogged down in the past but i i did want to ask this have your recent career moves affected your love of rom space night?
1: No, and I'll tell you why. Um because it hasn't ended up anywhere else yet. And what I mean by that is when we were publishing Doctor Who, man, mm-hmm. I love Doctor Who. Like I was so into that show. Um I got into it with the David Tennant version more than anything. Mm-hmm. And that was the comic we published. And then the rights went to the BBC. And I instantly was like, fuck Dr. Who, what a stupid property. <laughs> like every version they've done since then is terrible, which isn't at all true. But, but it's like, when you're ex-leads, you're like, oh, they put on weight. You know what I mean? Like you just, you start finding fault that even if it's not there because you're no longer a rational person about a thing, you're like, it's all emotion. So if, if Rom went to, I don't know, anywhere else and I wasn't involved with it, I'd be like, ROM's a stupid dated old concept from the past based on a ridiculous toy. Why would anybody still care? But because that hasn't happened yet, like that childhood love is still the thing that like overwhelmingly fills my mind when you mention ROM. Honestly, I don't think there's any way I would ever fully uh, swear off ROM, like, but I would be much more focused on wanting just reprints from the past and not mm-hmm. caring at all about what somebody else might do in the present. That said, if somebody else gets ROM, I think they could do way worse than hire Max Brooks um, to write a ROM comic, because while they may not think of him, there was a con years ago in Chicago where I ended up, like, after a G.I. Joe panel, Max wrote a G.I. Joe comic. We ended up, like, at this late-night pizza joint, and everybody was sitting around talking about nonsense, and me and Max just got into this deep conversation naming all of the, like, ancillary space nights in the old ROM series. And I'm like, nobody is beating my knowledge of ROM, motherfucker. And Max, <laughs> ki- Max killed me. Like, Max knew everything there was to know. And I was like, man, that guy is- – because I think Max is a great writer. Um, so if you could somehow pull Max away from novels and everything else he's doing back to comics, like, I think he would write a hell of a ROM comic.
2: Now We, we talked a little bit about licensed stuff before, but I'm curious – knowing being in the industry and knowing all of the weird hijinks that both that has had to do with the ROM license and Marvel (laughs) and all of this did that affect how you dealt with writing and working with licensed properties knowing the how weird that can get
1: yes absolutely because that was the thing that I chased for literally about a decade um like as soon as we started a relationship with Hasbro on Transformers, which is like late 2005, early 2006, I started asking about ROM. And they go, could, could you focus on launching the big book that you just licensed and not worry about this thing that we bought from Parker Brothers that we don't even know about? Um, but so I just kept chipping away over years asking and asking. And, you know, for a lot of, a lot of licensors – you know, like any company, they run lean, they've run as lean as they're able to or as is as, as feasible for them. And so they don't necessarily have somebody sitting around whose job is just to go figure out the arcane ROM rights from 30 years ago. And so they go, well, We don't know if we own it or what we own or if it's a thing or what part Marvel has claimed to. And so I kind of did all this legal like groundwork for them, which is figuring out who owns what. And here's a list of exactly what parts of the property belong to marvel what parts would belong to hasbro and like here's kind of your legal i don't know proof of life and all you need to really make this thing work and so i don't know that they necessarily took that and did anything with it but i was just trying to prove to them that there was a way to sort of skin this and make it workable but but knowing that the legal concerns and like their broader toy relationship with marvel were going to be the overriding decision, you know, catalyst on everything. There was a lot of just making sure we didn't do anything that was going to rub anybody wrong. Nor did I want to. You know, I mean, I we had a good relationship with Marvel and I I mean, I I like Marvel and I don't want to do anything that was necessarily not going to sit well with them anyway, because my whole thing was I want to get both companies to agree to do reprints because I really want those books, you know, to exist. Um, and so yeah, we erred on the side of whatever cautions we were asked to take and in some cases that was make sure the feet are based on the toy's feet and not the feet that Salvi Sama drew in the old comic because those feet belong to Marvel even though they're pretty similar like it's hard to parse the difference between the two but it was you know just the toy box and the toy the story told on the box became the like the legal document like anything mentioned on the original packaging and that looks like the original toy is fair game and so that's Why we changed a lot of the armor we updated things that i mean frankly i thought were minimal changes comparatively you know you if you look at like the first version of iron man where iron man was 40 years later like it's Mm -hmm. drastically different we gave rom fingers and maybe smoothed out his head a tiny bit and people threw a fit like we like it it was kind of like that that renaissance painting that 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 poor person (laughs) completely botched you know, and it, it was, or that like, I love Lucy statue, you know, it was like, no, no, our roms not that different, but I think people just want what they know. And so it, even giving him fingers was, was a thing that created a lot of, uh, strife that I was sort of shocked by, but I also, I get it. Like I get that fans really want the thing that they want and, and are not as accepting of, of changes, but, but those changes were done back to your question for, mm-hmm. A reason, yeah, to make sure that everybody played nicely
2: with one another. Judging by what you said earlier, you've uh, got a good working relationship with Joe Hill, who's been a favorite author of mine since Heart Shaped Box. Hmm. Uh, uh, How did it feel to watch Lock and Key, a book you were involved in editing and publishing and when I was reading from issue one, volume one, blow up in the way it has?
1: I mean, it was crazy and one of those things where a lot of times you put together a great book with a great team and you think this can't miss and then it misses because a lot of things miss you know they just there's a lot of comics and a lot of great comics and so a lot of good comics don't find their audience the way you want them to this was one where it became so gratifying that it did because I knew how great Joe was right from the start and I mean Gabriel was a guy that I met when he was drawing CSI comics. And so along the way, I kept trying to steer him toward bigger and bigger things that would kind of stair step him up to to the the plateaus that I knew he was able to hit and deserved to be handed those chances. And so I knew on paper it was a great book. You know, it launched like something like 6,000, 6,500 copies, which even in 2008, like is a pretty meager launch and not the kind of book that normally you know get seven years from or you get six different series from and all of those things or you eventually get a sandman crossover um and so it it was incredibly gratifying even that that fox wanted to shoot a pilot early on whether it got to air or not it was like that was the thing that kind of elevated in a lot of people's minds who'd never even heard of it that were then curious about what this tv show was going to be so let's check out the book and so it just it did what you kind of want from, from any ancillary, um, you know, take on, on your comic, which is exposing that comic to a lot more readers. And so whatever form the TV show takes, like getting people looking at the book is, is exciting. And so now it's become this thing that people hold up alongside the Sandmans and the preachers and the Alan Moore comics of the world as, as the thing you give a lot of people who are new to comics as like one of comics high points and, yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to express like what that means and how good that feels to know that the book that those two guys did is getting the kind of attention and audience that I've long felt it deserved.
2: Hey, I saw that Fox bottled NYCC. I liked it.
1: It was good. It was, it was more of a good, like indie film, which it would be because Mark Romanek is, is a guy that, you know, that's his world. And so it was dark and sort of, it moved at a pace that TV shows maybe weren't still moving at, but I mean, I liked it for that reason because it was all mood and, and I don't know, just kind of created a world, but it, for whatever reason that it didn't find its mark with Fox execs, which ultimately like leads you to where you, you probably should be, which is this Netflix version. But yeah, I, I thought all three versions of it have, uh, have been solid. Have you ever seen the Hulu pilot? I haven't. That one's, weird it, it it never turned up like even on a torrent site where everything shows up on youtube or torrent or somewhere but like that one just yeah nobody's really seen in fact i i have tried to locate a copy of it since uh since it got pulled and i mean it's yeah there it just doesn't it's just not out there anywhere
0: you know you know it's funny you said torrent site which is the logical place to go for that sort of thing in 2022 but my head immediately went to well maybe it'll show up at that one booth that sells bootlegs at every convention
1: <laughs> i got roger corman's fantastic four over here yep. i got the hulu walking key pile right here yeah
2: the, uh the cbs japanese, babies from the 80s. the, the yeah, exactly, uh the, yeah. the japanese animated tomb of dracula adaptation Absolutely. Wait, what? Does that exist? Absolutely. It adapted bits and pieces of the classic colon uh, Tomb of Dracula, and it it was released by an anime studio in the mid-80s. Wow. I've never seen it, but I know I saw it once at one of those booths, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a terrible transfer, and I don't have... It's the end of the cotton. not have the cash for it. Damn.
1: Oh man, yeah that that's now going to kickstart a, a a hunt because I mean it's harder to find those DVD guys now, right? I don't know if lawyers started walking around with cease and desist, but <laughs> those guys don't exist to the same degree that they used to, or, or booths just priced them out of it. But but that's a good thing to hunt for.
2: Yeah, the oh,
0: it might it might depend on the show because I was at C two E two and I definitely saw the
2: bootleg booth. Oh, there wow. are okay. there are bits of it on YouTube. Dracula, right. Sovereign right. of the Damned, it was called. Nice. <laughs> all right.
1: <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, if the lock and Key Who pilot ends up like that, like that is a badge of honor in itself. Like that's how we've all seen the Roger Foreman FF movie.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Which isn't terrible, by the way. If it had a decent transfer, I think people would talk it up more favorably.
0: One day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that that is a good segue. Actually, are you are you back on the are you on the convention circuit now that conventions are starting to be a thing again?
1: Yeah. So I, but the, my first one back was the uh, Comic Con that uh, the Comic Con organization did over Thanksgiving weekend. So it was at the Convention Center in San Diego, like their July show. It was a much stripped down affair. You know, they called it Comic Con Special Edition, and so there were no big studios or even publishers. Um, I think Aftershock was probably the biggest publisher that had a presence there. Mm. And so it was it was weird, but it was nice in that regard because it wasn't too crowded. So you could kind of ease your way back in and not feel, uh, I don't know, just too weird about people pressing on you from all sides. Um, mm. And then I did, there's a smaller con called Rocket Con here in San Diego last weekend that I went to. That was a bit you know a bit more packed in because it was a smaller space but it was fun like it's i don't know i just missed that so much it's just so nice seeing people that you don't otherwise you know get to hang out with and all that and Mm -hmm. i mean for me like i love picking through long boxes and just looking for other old comics that can find space on the spinner rack and all that so yeah I'm, i'm i'm hoping to do more of those this year
0: you know what let, let let's get into that rack actually uh you know you've got you've got the front-facing books are all syzygy books you've got rain you've got seventy one, seventy four. What 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 else you got there
1: i mean behind those are are <laughs> you know the old stuff like the oh. there's a lot of silver edge represented so i mean a lot of it for me it's marvel you know frank miller daredevil george Perez, team titans watchmen uh the one problem I have with this spinner act versus the one I have, I have another one up in my in my office. Um, that one shows the comics a lot better. This one, you know, it doesn't display the full covers too clearly. And so like that's the only reason I want is just to keep the forever rotating pieces of art staring at me. And mm-hmm. so I've gotten even more geeky about it where I'll now start theming different sides. So I, you know, I have a side upstairs that's all the 25th Marvel anniversary covers. Oh, I did aside. Nice. that is all the like photo covers, like the old Submariner or Daredevil comics where it's, you know, characters drawn against a photo backdrop, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just my way to constantly rotate to, like childhood loves and keep it as front and center as possible.
0: That's excellent. Um, is, is there, is there anything on there that's sort of like a, a prize above the rest?
1: Um, probably, I mean, Ooh, there's Beta Ray Some of these oh, yeah. I, I got a knight. dark 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 knight returns. I got Walt Simonson's first Thor. Well, first Thor as writer and artist. Mm-hmm. Um I know somebody would correct me, but like, actually, you know, he drew Thor back a few years before he took over the series in full, but uh yeah, like stuff like that, you know, just the stuff that really meant a lot to me as a kid or or you know, Stanley Jack Kirby Fantastic Ford, or the first appearance of Wonder Man, which was a childhood favorite character of mine and so just stuff like that like it's all the stuff you read when you're i don't know seven eight twelve years old like the stuff that sort of looms largest in your head and so for me it's either stuff i read in in old stanley you know trade paperback reprints or like the wolfman perez teen titans books that were the kind of thing that made me swear off being just a marvel zombie and find my way to dc Mm-hmm. which then led me into, you know, everything they were doing at the time, the crisis and the, the Giffen Legion and all of that stuff. Like, I don't know, just all of that just still, not only looms large, but, but thanks to the pandemic, is the wrong expression, but thanks to, I guess, being housebound amidst your collection, I've been revisiting a lot more of it. And so it's just nice to see all of these reminders of the things that made you love comics before you actually had any association with the business itself.
0: That, that is, that is the thing, especially during that period when, you know, comic books were or comic shops were like shut down and Diamond wasn't putting out anything new, you know, the collectibles, it drove up the collectibles market big time. I remember uh, one buddy of mine who runs a shop uh, in, in South Jersey says to me, is, cause they're all, you know, they're all pivoting to like online sales and what have you. They're like, yeah. I, I, I've gone through all my wall books. I got, I got nothing left.
1: Yeah, when, when you know, the first I saw, I was at a shop recently and I saw they had the first appearance of Ultimo, who was this big, stupid robot that Iron Man fought, like, I don't know, twice. He's never shown up anywhere important. He's never mattered. And it was like, first appearance of Ultimo and the, the markup on it was insane. I was like, that's not a thing. That's not a thing anybody cares about. But it it is that, yeah, like, first appearance of Taskmaster now, thanks to Black Widow and everything mm. is just... Like it's kind of fun just to watch as things explode. Like the first appearance of Madam web was a book you probably found in dollar bins, you know, last year. Mm -hmm, And now mm -hmm. it's a book that is, is exploding because, you know, she's rumored to be in this movie or that TV show or whatnot. And it's, it's kind of amusing to watch that Marvel bump that uh, they give to things and watching fans try to do the calculus of, do I sell it at the announcement point? You know, when, Vision actually shows up as a white version of himself on the TV show. Like when do I part with this thing that is suddenly just exploded in, in value that is probably going to drop after the fact, but yeah, it's, it's been crazy to watch.
0: It, it's actually, it's, it's not even limited to more. I remember I went to a, uh, like an Elks club show, it was just, you know, bin diving and this one guy had like, I don't know, a few boxes of, of spawn, of like you know early mcfarland maybe capullo period spawn they were they were marked up so so high
1: and you're like there's 800 000 copies of those books in market like it can't be that valuable
0: yeah it's 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 like looking at uh it's like looking at um that issue of amazing with obama on the cover that like yeah you know five years ago was like
1: an entire long box at a show
0: <laughs> and seeing that yeah, marked and up the, is crazy
1: the the bummer of it is- is like i go through these phases where i'm like well i should sell off some of these things and then i can use them to fund new comic series or something like that mm-hmm. and so then you make the decision to part with some stuff and then the money's there and then it, it's gone and then the comic's just gone and you're like i don't even remember what i bought for that but god damn i would kill to have that book back <laughs> um and so almost 201 like i've regretted selling just about everything
2: um
1: because again, the the money's kind of transitory. If it helps you pay a bill or whatever, it's helpful with in the immediate. It's like, well, then if you ever want to rebuy that comic, it's going to be ten times more than what you uh, originally paid for it or even sold it for. So, you know, you gotta you gotta really want to part with these things so you don't have that buyer's remorse later.
0: It's a it's a crazy market, absolutely. <laughs>
1: um. I mean, that's kind of the fun of it, though, right? Is not only working on or or consuming new books, but also finding the stuff that you loved or seeing if you can find that special thing that meant a lot to you, but that hopefully hasn't blown up in the way that a lot of the old books have. Like, it's it's great when you're a fan of a really stupid old character because, you know, you can often find a lot of those appearances for, for still a reasonable price. You're just like, please, Marvel, don't put him in the what-if show so I can I can keep finding
2: those and not have to overpay. Or a creator who you love, who isn't, huge but but might or, or when they blow up and it's like i've already got all that stuff
1: yeah yeah exactly and then you wonder like the other thing that frustrates me about the business is why like looking at guys like butch geist or ron friends or even keith giffen like their books are always selling for so reasonably and i'm like those guys are such great talents like why aren't why aren't their books elevated to the same degree as other people's because they're better than so many people like how come they have kind of this fan, this fandom around what they do, but somehow they've never quite launched into the stratosphere. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's all kind of arcane and, and, you know, who knows why these things happen the way they happen, but it, it's always just kind of fun to watch.
0: It is, and it probably you know, and a lot of it's is, is like how many of their characters have been adapted, right? You know what I mean? Like, Bill Matlow, I feel like, prior to Guardians of the Galaxy, taking off did you know obviously you know we knew who he was but does that translate to you know the wider speculator market and and you know the more the more casual fan
1: right him roger stern you know guys like that who wrote great comics you know were just great (laughs) superhero writers that that never really got elevated in the way that you know the millers and Burns and Simonsons and maybe it's because they were just writers and didn't write and draw their stuff, but you're right. Like Mantlo wrote everything and he wrote everything well, but he's, he's never kind of attained that, that sort of top spot for a lot of people.
2: Eventually DC will do the animated series around ambush bug. And then, <laughs> then <laughs> Keith right? Giffen will get his, <laughs> his day.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like, yeah, you could use him to almost mystery science theater, um, some old dc stuff or something like that yeah there, there's definitely something to do with him
0: there's a free idea for uh, hbo max <laughs> right <laughs> oh man so uh i i didn't want to drive us into the end of the show without asking this question uh how did you end up an extra on power rangers
1: i don't really know um i uh so i lost a job at that point um and so I signed up with like a temp firm to do anything just to, to pay bills, you know? And, and like, I was, I was like first year of college or something like that. And so I was, I was paying for my school, but I was also paying rent. And I was, so I was perennially underwater, you know, like any spare dollar that I had, I put toward comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just scrambling for anything to kind of in the immediate get by. And so I signed up not only with uh temp agencies where i was doing like i don't know filing work or data entry but also signed up with this talent agency because i'm like well that's in the immediate they pay you for a day's work and you make 80 bucks or something like that and the only thing they ever called for was a few power Rangers episodes Mm -hmm. um and so yeah it was as simple as that it was like i don't know by the time i drove to la spent 14 hours on set and then drove all the way back home to orange county you know it was a tank of gas and so i probably made like 30 bucks over what uh at the end of it all but i don't know it was just kind of a fun diversion for a while um so i did a few episodes one of which they scrapped it was like the original pilot
0: um
1: and then when they were going to do the the movie they were going to do a movie they called me to get involved with that and at that point when i had another job so i turned it down i was like why did i turn that down like maybe that would have actually become a thing you know as it is now i've only got uh these ridiculous cameos um to to sort of, I don't know, talk about and make fun of and stuff like that, which was amusing, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't ever lead anywhere. It was nothing I ever pursued. I did. So the, one of the guys that played one of the bad guys on the show, um, Mm -hmm. he's one of the bullies, you know, there was bulk and skull. Right. Mm -hmm. So I saw skull at a New York comic-con a few years ago, and he was like standing outside a panel waiting for his panel. I was waiting for mine. So there's no one else around. I went up to him and I was like, Hey man, I was an extra on the show and I showed him the picture of me, you know, getting the trash can dumped on <laughs> my head. And he goes, uh, okay. And I go, so what have you been up to since then? You know, and that was, it was like 25 <laughs> years. And he goes, seriously? I'm like, "No, nah, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I don't know what to say to you, man. Like, he goes, and so he just kind of took a couple steps back and was like, uh, good, good to see you again. <laughs> Which then convinced me that I need to do Power Rangers panels and just sit there or our conventions just have a table, just signing like pictures of me with a trash can over my head kind of thing. Um, just to be completely ridiculous. But, but yeah, it was, it was just a goofy way to, to get a couple bucks to, to get to the next week.
0: That is fascinating. <laughs> I always like, I used to watch a lot of Saved by the Bell and I always <laughs> think about how on that show, Scott Wolf was like an extra and he sticks out like a sore thumb because it's you know scott wolf from party of five and then yeah um, who's the other one it was christine taylor Ben you know ben stiller's wife oh yeah yeah it's crazy
1: <laughs> yeah which i guess speaks to that 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 it factor that some have where mm-hmm. others get trash cans dumped on their head and, and then sent home <laughs>
0: and then not remembered by skulls uh uh 25 years
1: later. It, it, exactly well and then so my only other claim to fame was i was in jersey girl mm-hmm. in a deleted scene so it's like the you know it never actually broke through. <laughs> uh, so uh, what are you what are you reading right now? I'm reading I don't know like so many comics. Um, so many comics that I will hang up and be like that would have been a good comic to mention, um, which is always the case. but like like everybody, I was really excited to see saga back in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I read a lot of image books because because now I... Pay a much more attention to what image is doing, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's I I like I read just about everything Tom King does. I tend to follow writers or artists that I love Mm -hmm. more than I follow characters or titles at this point. Um, And so, yeah, I I read a lot of comics when I can, but for the most part, I'm just trying to keep I don't know two or three novels or books going at once, just because I I don't know I'm obsessive about trying to at least make sure I read one to two books a month. Um, And sometimes that takes the form of audio books, which I can do on dog walks. So like just got through Mel Brooks's autobiography, which I thought was amazing, especially hearing him read it. Um, I just, I don't know. That's that's kind of thing I enjoy in my spare time when I'm not reading scripts or writing scripts Mm -hmm. or putting comics together. So it's kind of like a swirl of books and comics at all times in my life. But that also makes it hard to kind of remember specifically what i'm into at any given time until i hang up a call then i remember what i should have said you just mentioned having how's that for a, like anticlimactic window. no it's no it, <laughs> listen it's
0: it's always funny because we it's like the next to last question every episode and and in invariably you know th- there are plenty of guests who are like Ah oh, shit! Um, and they're looking around, you know, like they're like they're Kaiser, like they Kaiser Soze trying to find like the things that they could use to craft their story. And,
1: and yeah, yeah, eventually... right, right. I read Fantastic Four by Lee and yeah. Kirby.
2: Uh, <laughs> oh, we had a guest ask us back last week, and I was like, uh, uh, I read forty <laughs> so fucking comics at, a week. Yeah. How the yeah. hell am I not remembering any of them right now? I
1: know, I know, but there's so many, and so which is great. Like it kind of speaks to the breadth of the industry that there's too many to necessarily remember um i will say i just did a full run uh reread of ann and john Romita jr's daredevil
2: Ooh,
1: and like nice. i'm a i'm a miller daredevil guy but god that that nascenti ramita run was also so strong she
0: nascenti has such a, a a clear voice and things to say that it's you know and she wasn't afraid to get weird and have daredevil fight a vacuum cleaner and lose so
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well that, and you know, there's all this talk now that comics didn't used to be political and I'm reading her stuff and like her comics are so liberal and political and like, but everybody just loved them because I don't think people were as sort of split into factions as they are now. But like, I love that she was doing stuff that like I didn't otherwise get exposed to, you know, like, I, I don't know. I just, it's kind of fun reading old and new and just kind of seeing the contrasting St- ways of telling stories that that people use then versus now. And so I guess I also try to do that and try to keep a, a foot in the past, but also, you know, a foot hold in whatever's going on in, in the present market as well.
0: It's a good mix. Well, uh, Chris, this has been a uh, fantastic uh, time. Final question as we let you go. How can people keep up with what you're doing, keep up with what is
1: doing and, and all that? Yes. Yeah, so and there's a website world of syzygy dot dot world of I can't pronounce it either. Um, <laughs> uh, don't ask me to spell that either. Um, world of Um, but then I'm on, I'm Chris underscore Ryle on Twitter and Instagram. And so we're, we're constantly just spreading stuff around that away. Um, so those are probably the best ways is just Twitter and Instagram, both Ash and I and Syzygy are, uh, all over the place, just, you know, peddling our wares and showing off what's coming up. Right on. Well, Chris, thank you very much for coming on the show. Man, great talking to both of you. Thank you very much.
0: That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WM QA is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, Chris is on Infinite Earths and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh PS Matt and Will. Sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to wmq a on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support wmq a at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks, a $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider Woman series, Cat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the loyalist content consumer. You can follow wmq a on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lasowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man.
1: WMQA.